So just before we get going, uh, it's just important to emphasise that Tim is speaking here in his capacity as an individual and also with his nuclear industry hat on and not as anything else like a non-executive director of Great British Nuclear. So let's get cracking. Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Nuclear energy has been an up and down story for the last few decades. But at the moment, it's definitely on the up. The biggest sign? The COP28 climate conference this month when 22 nations pledged to triple their nuclear capacity by 2050. True, some of those were countries not known for nuclear power, like Morocco and Ghana, but also major powers like the US, Britain and France. There's been a general surge of enthusiasm for all things atomic. Shares in companies involved in the area have been surging, as investors sent more orders for nuclear technology. Uranium? The fuel that powers most reactors has risen too. The price recently hit $85 a pound, which is its highest since 2008. But if it all sounds very bullish, it also begs the question, what does it mean to build all these new nuclear power plants? And if it's so easy, why have we in the West built almost nothing in the past few decades? In the UK, since the last big programme ordered in the 1960s and 1970s, we've built just one, Sizewell B., And that was completed in the 1990s. And the one new order at Hinkley Point in Somerset, well, that was supposed to be ready to cook our Christmas turkeys in 2017 and cost £9 billion. Now it's not expected to open till almost 2030 and at a cost three times as much. So to answer some of these questions, we've decided to turn to a man who knows. Tim Stone is a former banker, an ex-director of the European Investment Bank, who now chairs the Nuclear Industry Association in the UK. An advisor to five energy secretaries, he's heavily involved in the latest efforts to restart Britain's nuclear sector as a director of Great British Nuclear, the state-owned company that's going to invest in all these new reactors. So welcome, Tim. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Neil. Lovely to be with you. So I suppose we should kick off by asking the big question, which is how likely is it over the next 27 years that we can build 30 gigawatts of nuclear power plants? That's around 25 size well Bs or one opening roughly each year between now and 2050, given what's happened in the last 27 years. That's a very good question. The fundamental issue is one of scale. It's not can you do it at all, but can you do it at scale? And historically, if you look back, the French delivered their 58 stations pretty quickly. The Chinese have delivered pretty quickly. The Japanese have. The Koreans have. We did pretty well with the AGRs, unfortunately, all of them being different. So there were all sorts of messings around. But what we've never done, what nobody's ever really done, is to build properly as a fleet. So the challenge now is if you're going to do this, if any other country is going to do this, is how do you do this on an industrial scale? And how do you treat it as an industrial project? as a production line, and not as a one-off, let's do a few, let's think about it, oh, we've lost all the skills, and do it again. It comes back to a fundamental issue for all states, all governments, which is that the state owns failure in national infrastructure. doesn't mean they have to build anything, but they have to make sure it happens, and that all the skills, all the capacity, all the supply chains, all the bits and pieces you need to make it happen are there. Most states, since probably the 70s, 
have kind of just abrogated all that to markets and it won't work as pure markets. We need much more organization and a much clearer view as to what has to be done. Can we do it? It's possible. Will we do it? That's going to come down to proper commitment and a clear focus on I've started so I'll finish. Can I just follow up by asking a question which has been begged by everything you've just said, which is where does all the money come from to create this infrastructure, industrial capacity that will be needed to build all these new plants? Because we might have had some of that capacity in the past, but we've essentially allowed it to all rust over in the last three decades. There are two options. One is the private sector and the public sector. It doesn't seem to me that the private sector has very much confidence in the nuclear industry. It thinks it's just a stop-start enterprise. So how do you get over that problem? And does it really require the public sector simply to, to wade in and get fully involved? The fundamental job of the public sector is to create trust and confidence in the whole process because the things that scare the living daylights out of the investors are, as much as anything, the political risk. And if you look at what happened, you referred to it in the opening, with Sizewell, that was originally a programme of 10 reactors. Guess what happened? Only one got built. Political risk is not something that you price in an organised and disciplined way. You tolerate it for a bit and then you just say no. So it's how different countries, frankly, not just the UK, how do we approach this in a way that gives confidence that the political system is consistent and trustworthy, firstly, and secondly, that the processes for building are processes which are recognised as industrialised and not the restart. So you've got a restart problem, undoubtedly. Where's the money going to come from? Well, let's just stand right back. We have to replace the vast bulk of the energy generation system in the UK if we're going to head anywhere towards net zero. You've got to pay for it. You pay for it in the end through your user charges. You pay for it through your electricity bills. The question you're posing is taking the waiting out of wanting and where does the money come from in the first place, which is then repaid from the bills in due course. Sure. How much capital is involved? Is it something which the private sector couldn't do? No, it's not. It's about confidence because the money's going to have to come for all of these things, wherever it is. And the question is, how much do we allocate to nuclear? And what are the relative risks of building nuclear from the investor's point of view? So the first answer to this you'll see next year when we see what happens to the financing of Sizewell C. The government and the project team are out at the moment looking for both equity and debt for that. And it'll be a very interesting test to see how the view of that as the learnings from Hinkley Point C and a, um, a more effectively second of a kind, third of a kind process does actually produce that trust and confidence. I'm not worried about where the money comes from. I'm not worried about that because you've got the same issue for any form of generation, whatever it is. At the end of the day, whilst nuclear is more expensive, it lasts an awful lot longer. So you've still got the relative cost of electricity coming out at the end of it, to be fairly sensible. But fundamentally, we've got to get a process that works that the investors, whether equity or debt, can actually trust. That's all very well. And if I was a large investor, I would look at what's happened in the past and I would really think that it was not a great idea to risk the money in my fund. This just looks like a triumph of hope over experience um, because in the past, no market in the UK has been prepared to take the risk. They tried it once with the privatisation, but that failed. And given the way that the costs escalate remorselessly, and the political will is always going to be changeable. I don't see why anybody with private sector capital should go anywhere near something like this. And based on your view of the data there, I'd agree with you, but you need to look at what has actually happened that has worked and which ones have worked and why. So if we pick 
a really good set. The Canadian can-do reactors, which use natural uranium unenriched, have been built in Canada, in Argentina, in Romania, in South Korea, in China, on time, on budget. <laughs> Why don't we buy some of these? Well, let's keep going on this. There must be a reason. But the killer, the killer issue is not the tech. The tech is actually pretty boring. For all, you know, there's all this hype about nuclear being very scary and complicated. It's not. The complicated bit is the bit that you do before you get the license from the regulator. The bit that causes the trouble is the building of it. And the guy that built those can-dos around the world was the original project director on Abu Dhabi, which is the other one, which is pretty close to on time and on budget in a country that had never done anything before. So you have a common issue here, not just across nuclear, but with big projects. Look at what just happened to HS2. One of the things that I would get us to look at is why do big projects work as opposed to fail? And the ones that work, and I'll include in that a great UK example everybody forgets about, which is HS1 which was on budget and slightly early. And the reason it was on budget and slightly early is the same reason that those can-dos around the world were built on time and on budget and why Abu Dhabi did so well, which was they did it properly, which means that before you start building, you have finished all the design work and you're preferably on the second of a kind, that you've done all the construction planning in immense detail, you have contracts that make sense and you have people running it who actually know what they're doing. So... From everything you've just said, the first big chicken and egg problem is the idea that in order to get private capital into this industry, you need to have an assurance that there will be a big flow of orders coming in future. I.e. you won't just order one, like size well C, and then the whole thing goes cold for 20 years. So how do you ensure that? How can you credibly ensure that utilities which are going to order their first of a kind of a nuclear plant will not have a terrible experience, have their investors scream at them, like Neil, we've seen this story before, it's a disaster, and then the whole thing gets switched off. At the end of the day with this, we're talking about a national endeavour. This is not something which is down to individual utilities. And remember that many of the utilities, certainly across Europe, don't have the balance sheets anymore to do this. So quite a lot of the demand, particularly of the smaller stuff, you know, where you're talking two, three billion per unit, isn't going to come from there. It's going to come from the same places as, for example, the finance for Bruce Power, which is from the big Canadian funds. And those guys should only touch this, will only touch this, with that confidence that they they believe that the state isn't going to interfere and stop it. And it's really interesting when you look back at the history of the UK, it's a complete roller coaster of the state saying, let's do stuff, oh, let's not, let's do stuff, oh, let's not. No, the the political reality in this country is that they can barely agree on lunch, let alone anything which is long term. That seems to me to be something which has always been beyond our grasp and is only going to change if, I suppose, if you have cross-party agreement, although the history of cross-party agreement on these things is not very encouraging. So I don't see a way forward Let's let's presume for a moment that cross-party support exists. And I have to say, I don't wholly agree with Neil, because I think if you look at the Climate Change Act of 2008, as far as I can remember, two MPs in the entire class of Commons voted against. Now, you may think it's a stupid piece of energy policy, but the point is it achieved a degree of unanimity. Yeah, like um, HS2. <laughs> what exactly is Great British Nuclear going to do? What role can it play in this national endeavour that you talk about? Great British Nuclear has come out of a recognition that we do not have energy security. Nuclear is part of that and a recognition of what the private sector can and can't do 
in the context of the state owning failure in big national infrastructure. So what GBN's got to do is to create the beginnings of that fleet build, whether it's SMRs or maybe perhaps some more gigawatt scale as well. What's the state really good at? What's the private sector really good at? The private sector is really good at technical designs, and it can be really good at construction. The private sector is not very good at things like planning permission. It's not very good at sorting out which sites and where these things happen. So GBN has got a couple of jobs. It's got to figure out which tech it wants to build to start with, that we have the most trust in, in terms of its ability to get to a sensible construction process and sensible outcomes at a sensible price. It's then got to put an environment around that with a developer body to make it happen. And that's where GBN will take part in creating two development organizations, two DEVCOs. Those take the early projects forwards, build a fleet build process, and assuming that works properly, and if it doesn't, frankly, we're all going abroad anyway, but assuming that works properly, those two DEVCOs then become a much more private sector organization. And the question is, what does the state have to do? So it'll have to put some money in there to help make all this happen. So what you call a DEVCO, which is a sort of vehicle, Hmm. will actually build a a nuclear power plant. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. So you have two Two competing DEVCOs, what they each build a plant. The word competition needs knocking out of this because it's it's much more about... (laughs) And the reason I say that is you can't run competitions on big national infrastructure it doesn't work the the numbers ju- just don't work it's about how do you have a couple of organizations where you can compare and contrast where, where you can learn from each other firstly secondly you do need parallel delivery processes because the pace and scale of what we have to do is large so one single body on its own isn't going to be enough you need two cranking forwards if you're going to have two smr designs taken forwards and you'd want to do that to avoid the eggs in baskets risk anyway, mm-hmm. have one that focuses on the, the rapid delivery of each. Because at the end of the process here, if we're going to get to these sort of numbers, you're not going to do this on eight, nine, ten year builds. You're going to have to do this when you're on the site. You're arriving on site to sparks out of the end in a couple of years. Otherwise, the simple timescale isn't going to work. And that's where the SMR yeah. manufacturing process should, underlined, make a big difference. I know Neil's itching to jump in, but I just want to quickly on on SMRs. So for our listeners, so they can understand what we're talking about here. Most reactors that we have are around, I'd say, a thousand megawatts, somewhere a thousand to fifteen hundred megawatts. So very big. These are much smaller and could be as small as a hundred. But most of the kind of what you might call mainstream designs, somewhere between two hundred and fifty and five hundred megawatts. Why do we build large reactors? We built large reactors because it has economies of scale. So it's the electricity that comes out of a large reactor tends to be cheaper. These are more expensive. They were originally conceived of as things which were going to do specialist processes like create industrial heat and power, but now are seen increasingly as a way you can generate electricity. So Britain is talking about building... I think through Great British Nuclear, the idea is that those will be mainly small designs. Is that right? It'll be small reactors to start with, but GBN is also going to be looking at whether or not it should be doing gigawatt scale as well. But let's come back to the SMRs, because as you said, the big ones are there and they became bigger and bigger and bigger. So the Westinghouse AP1000 started life as the AP600, made bigger to spread the fixed costs. So therefore, you'd think from that, and Neil would be a good quizzical chap who would say, well, of course, if you make it smaller, the fixed costs will just swamp the thing. It's not about doing it the same way. The whole point about SMRs, first of all, I want to call them small modular power stations, not small modular reactors, because actually, you know, I used to finance aeroplanes. I didn't finance engines. They don't generate revenue. It's the aeroplane that generates the revenue, just like the power station generates the revenue. 
So the question is, can we use these smaller designs in a completely different approach to delivery so that it becomes much more of a product? You are in effect buying a, an A320 or a, a 737, a standard design that you crank out at a rate of knots where the vast bulk of the work is done in the factory on the factory quality conditions. And what you do at site is essentially the assembly of some giant Lego Duplo. So it's not about the conventional take all the nut screws, washers and bolts, pumps and valves to site and stick them together by hand, but you manufacture them in a factory and then you assemble at site much quicker. Yes. Mm. How likely in your view is it that we would be able to do this? It seems to me we've been dithering about this for years now. And just because Rolls-Royce quite good at designing nuclear reactors for submarines doesn't really mean that they are likely to be the ones to build these things. The same problems will arise in terms of the cost and the risks. And the further unknown is changes in health and safety rules, which has been one of the things that's bugged the nuclear industry, as far as I can see, for decades. Why is it going to be any different with these small reactors? You picked Rolls-Royce, it's a really good example. And what Rolls have been doing with their SMR is completely different to the way that they build the reactors for the submarines. They're very, very, very different designs for a start. But they are a really good example of someone who's taken that modularize the power station approach. Their design, which has been developed really since the early part of the last decade, is now in a form where it is very modular. It's very factory buildable. Each module can go to site on a truck to be assembled there literally in the sense of giant Duplo. So in terms of can we do this? Yes, we absolutely can. Others are catching up to them in that that approach. But it's essentially, you need a James Dyson kind of engineer in this, not a nuclear engineer. The nuclear engineer is fine in doing the basic design work and helping the regulator understand whether it's safe or not. But after that, it is much more of a product creation process. So it's that change from a conventional construction of a giant chemical plant approach to the manufacturing approach. Back to your point on health and safety, in terms of the modern designs, the view of the regulators of these things are way, way safer. And also we need to be careful about the word safe here because you're already looking at a world where in terms of deaths per terawatt hour of electricity generated, nuclear is right down at the bottom. It's down there with hydro. It's better even than rooftop solar. So in terms of the safety of these things, we've got to get past this. Frankly, it's almost a paranoia. It's completely unjustified. I agree with you entirely. It's psychological. It has nothing to do with the facts. Nuclear power generation is extremely safe. Even so what's your concern then? Is it public? My, well, public my concern, approval? my concern is the is the usual one of it's all very well saying that Rolls Royce have got a design which is almost ready to be built, but until it's done. And it's in an area where people are prepared to accept it, not very far from where they live, then I don't think the problem is anywhere near solved. Can I just come back to something that Neil said earlier on, which is when you said you talked about the can-do and how successful this would be, Neil said, why don't we just buy them? In a way, you sort of look at this and you say, here we are, we have designs in existence that we know how to build broadly. We know that they work. We could get started tomorrow, probably, or somewhere close to tomorrow. And yet here we are with 80 potential new designs, none of which has ever operated, 
some of which involve all sorts of new technology, which involve promises that they can be built in garden sheds by 2035. And what we know from the history of this industry is all these sort of promises generally turn out to be so much dust. So why are you as GB Nuclear, for example, prioritising this kind of paper reactor stuff, which has never been built, when we know that there are designs out there which we could actually get started on tomorrow? Well, it's a great idea, except that all the people who built them aren't around anymore. The killer issue here, the limiting factor, is physicality. It's about where's the cabling going to come from, where's the connections going to come from, where are the people who are going to build these things come from. Mm. And if you look back at the work we did last summer on the basis for GBN, the big focal point behind a programmatic approach, I build a couple, build four at a time, build eight at a time, is about building the supply chain for people. Because one of the things that the state in many countries has completely forgotten is that people's capacity and capability are as important as the ability of factories to make widgets. Mm. So with the focus on a small number of SMR designs, the idea there is that you get a small number of SMR designs and you crank them out like a Nissan production line and you build a confidence that we can do that. And if we can't do it, somebody else will. But I have every confidence that we are perfectly capable of doing this, provided we stick to our knitting and get on with it. Okay, one last sceptical question from me, which is, we tried this, obviously, in Europe and the United States in the 1970s. That was an era where we had vastly more industrial capacity than we do now. We made steel, we made forgings. You know, you look at the suppliers to the UK nuclear programs in the 1970s, they're full of names that no longer exist. In those days, despite all that capacity, there were huge bottlenecks in production, costs shot up, and it was basically hugely discouraging to the buyers, the utilities, and so forth. How on earth are we going to get around that problem if we're in this international race, everyone's doing it at the same time, everyone wants their forgings, their steel delivered tomorrow? Are we not going to end up with the same pickle we had in the 70s times two? I think there's a perfectly work way through this. So if we take forgings as a really good example, where we have always been the world leader in big forgings. Sheffield Forge Masters taught the Japanese how to build big forgings, and indeed the Indians. Sheffield Forge Masters almost went bust, and it was at the point when the government and the Ministry of Defence realised that this is a national asset that builds pressure vessels for submarine reactors, but also for SMRs and for other really high-quality bits of kit. And once you let that skill go, you won't get that back. So that has been rescued and kept alive. In the case of steel... We're going to have to make sure that we can deliver steel for railways, for buildings, for nuclear power stations. We're not a big consumer of steel in the grand scheme of things. But it is about, as you quite rightly say, that supply chain being confident. The pumps and valves that go in these things are not really exotic bits of kit. And you're quite right that the question is going to be, can we make sure that as we build up the supply chain for people with Great British Nuclear, we build up the supply chain for kits and parts? And that, again, is back to picking a couple of designs where you know exactly which parts you need. And then you ramp up the production step by step. So, yes, it's an industrial policy that has to be there. There has to be consistency. It's perfectly doable. There's nothing in this that requires any great novelty. Okay, so I can see that our relentless barrage of scepticism isn't going to dent your natural optimism. But how many orders for new nuclear reactors will the UK sign by the end of 2025? One. So we'll see. I don't want any more by then. What about the SMRs? When do we sign them? You, you sign those later in the decade. But what you do, you sign them later in the decade to get the first one. This is the, And this is the critical point. 
you don't do big projects quickly. You spend the time thinking it through, doing the engineering, doing the construction planning, and only when you're ready, then you start. But what then matters is that you have a rolling program that ramps up the speed of delivery on a really certain base. So, Sure, I get that. But my question was orders. So if I'm going to build a factory... I need to know that things are going to be built. I need to see that it's not just Grant Shapps or whoever's this week's energy secretary burbling away on the television. Something has actually been signed, which is seriously going to be set in train. How many of those orders? Two by the end of uh, next year. Of SMRs? SMRs. And Sizewell C is the only big one on the horizon. Yes. Best of luck with that. I hope it doesn't turn out that uh, we can't do can do. Well, <laughs> we can do this. We know how to do it. And it's it's down to commitment. This is not about do we have the, the fundamental skills and the, the money. The, that stuff is all fixable. I was one of the guys behind HS1. We did that in a very disciplined and organized way. And we had somebody who ran it day to day who knew exactly what they were doing. All this stuff is perfectly doable. The question is, will the commitment be there? And will we make sure that we are more than good enough to attract all the people the money and the tech to do it here because those reactor designs that we're going to pick for the UK, the intent with those is that they build factories here and they export those those reactors across Europe to these those 17 other states across Europe who want the reactors. They want the small reactors. Okay. Well, let us hope that I'm wrong, but uh, HS1 was a very long time ago. The more recent example is less attractive. Well, there we are. As the usual kind of... But... <laughs> encouragement I, coming I, from the touchline here yeah, yeah I, I mean i just think you know, i mean i I, w- I wish you every success and i uh, more power to you but you now the political quagmire that you're trying to wade through is enough to defeat a normal mortal but of course you are not a normal mortal <laughs> the political quagmire here is something where i think it's self-induced because there's, there's been no real need to do this for some time. This is this is a state endeavour. Whatever, whichever way you cut it and whichever way your politics are, it is a state endeavour. And if the state doesn't get behind it, then the consequences will be an appalling legacy for the politicians who let it wither on the vine. And, I, I, and all I can say is it, if we can keep this consensus going and understanding why, and this is part of why... Joe Q public needs to understand why this is so important to ensure the politicians don't have a, an excuse or, or frankly a reason to start messing around because we've got one shot. If we get this wrong, if the political support fades, we'll not get it back again in terms of, of industry, people and money interests for well over a decade, at which point it's too late. And if you want to end up with a balanced grid where the energy price that comes out of the end is sensible, We've got one shot to get this right. And if we don't get it right, and you end up in the parlour state that the Australians are heading towards, we will lose business. So one of the things that's worth remembering is, you know, the manufacturing economy of the 2050s, a lot of it's going to be about data. Microsoft two years ago hired a chief nuclear engineer because they want to know if they've got access to reliable 24-7 sensibly priced electricity. Because without that, the data doesn't work. Yeah, We're competing for these things. So it's going to be a real test of the big picture view of the politicians. If they don't get it right, then an awful lot of us are going to be emigrating. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say, I, 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 I have to say on this, I'm, I'm with Tim. You look at the United States Congress; usually makes our Parliament look like a sea of rational, kind of reasonable give and take. 
in that they are completely gridlocked. And this is one of the few issues on which there is genuine cross-party support. They basically all accept that this is something that probably has to be done. So I, I do think there is an imperative here. I, my concern is more making the right choices because you talk about it as a one-shot thing. And if it really is a one-shot thing, rather than what was it they used to say about the United States in the Second World War, that they finally found the right answer after exploring all the alternatives. I, I think there's a strong chance that it will take more staying power because I think we will make mistakes and people will sit around going, why did we spend billions of pounds on this stupid idea? And the question is whether that imperative survives those sort of setbacks which will inevitably arise. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.